God, breathed by the Holy Spirit into the Apostle Paul, who wrote it down for us in this wonderful book of Romans. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that has to be one of the nicest renderings of Romans 8 I've heard with my ears, so thank you very much for that reading. And thank you so much for having me and uh, my family up here. It's, I know it's a cliche for speaker to, speakers to say that, but it really is a pleasure and an honor. I've got to, uh, Nikki and I were saying um, how much we feel a sort of brotherly affection for Dave, and I just want to, um, again, I don't like adulating preachers too much, but I do think uh, you have been blessed with a really special family and in Dave and Miriam and the kids, and that this is the kind of match nobody would have necessarily foreseen, but it's, you now see it, and it's, it's resonant and wonderful. Um, and I know Dave is a man of integrity and humility and love for the Lord, so I, um, it's, it's a great pleasure to be invited by him and a great pleasure to be with you, God's dear little one. So I'm going to pray for us um, as we start. Please, if you'd like to bow your heads, please do. Father, we are your dear little ones, and you know where each of us is at. You know the busynesses, the tirednesses, the pains, the uncertainties that plague and shadow each of us this morning, all different kinds of troubles we face in this world, different kinds of causes to groan. Be with us, Father. It's a pleasure to be in your presence. And we want, as little children, to be sitting before you, nestling into you, hearing your word. So please, speak to us by your spirit uh, and through your word this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let me just get my coffee-stained manuscript here. My... <laughs> It's sort of an inevitability for me that there'll be coffee stains on my talks <laughs> one way or another. Uh, but I want you to think about the least useful piece of advice or word of consolation that you've ever received from. When you've been in a time of need, you've really needed someone to help you. And instead of being seen, instead of being validated, it's just been something that hasn't hit the mark. I've heard a few lately. Um, I've got some, uh, a friend in Europe who's been in a period of great loss. He'd lost his parents. His wife had recently left him and taken their only son with him, and he was feeling extremely lonely. So he reached out to his last remaining relative, an aunt, 
uh, in a home and was told by the aunt, cheer up, think about all the people who have it worse than you. Thanks, auntie. I have another friend in New York struggling to make ends meet, um, working around the clock in public service uh, as a science teacher. And, you know, teaching wages are not great in the United States or perhaps anywhere. And this person was concerned about money. And here's the advice they got from a very close mentor and former friend. <laughs> they said, maybe your problem is you should just visualize yourself as rich while tapping acupressure points so that money can be attracted into your life by the laws of attraction. Ooh, <laughs> thanks. I read last night um, about two horrific pieces of advice that were going around the United States in the 1940s, uh, 20s to 40s, by groundbreaking psychiatrists trying to fix people's depression and anxiety. One, and this is not one that Tambourine Mountain Presbyterian Church endorses, <laughs> was to extract your teeth. How's that for advice if you're feeling miserable? Because your teeth might be harboring bacteria that cause hysteria and therefore mental illness. And if that didn't work, it was kind of a, a, a regressive argument. It can't be the teeth, it must be another organ. So there were ovaries, spleens, you name it, could go flying out the door. Not great advice when you're feeling down. Another one uh, in the United States which eventually got picked up and stopped after several thousand cases was to insert an ice pick in the eye socket and try and sever the strands between the cortex and the rest of the brain. So things, bad advice, we don't endorse here at Tambourine Mountain. <laughs> Often advice is like that, right? Trying to fix somebody. Or another kind of advice, which is just as bad, is the kind of advice that says, look, if you were just a bit stronger, then you'd be stronger. This happened to me when our family van broke down on our holiday recently up at Rainbow Beach. I've never had it before. Our car just literally stopped working. We pulled into the driveway and just everything shut down. Like it wouldn't unlock. We couldn't get in. We couldn't get our wallets. It just didn't budge. It completely froze. Lucky I had my phone. And we'd had some electrical repairs um, back in Brisbane, in North Brisbane, before our trip, not too far before. So I thought, it could be that something's come loose. We had all our wiring replaced, so probably it's electrical. So I called them up, and they asked me, um, sorry, I called up my insurer. The insurer asked me, uh, who shall not be named, did this happen because of a crash or an impact? And I said, no, it wasn't a crash, it just stopped working. And they said, oh, well, I'm afraid we can't help you. <laughs> try RACQ or try the initial repairer. So I called RACQ, and they're like, yeah, nah, that sounds pretty strange. <laughs> I don't think we can help you there. <laughs> um, sounds like you need a mechanic. And I'm like, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so they agreed to send a tow truck the next day. When the tow truck came, because the wheels were stuck, we couldn't get it on the truck. <laughs> so I'm feeling kind of in no man's land. Eventually, I called the first repairer who did the electrical repairs. Uh, you can imagine my heartbeat is up, and I'm feeling a bit stressed. And I say, um, uh, I, I think this could be a fault arising from the repair job we had recently. You know, I, I would have thought that's covered by you know, the warranty on labor you told me about. And they said, yes, it could be. And they say, you've got to bring her in to have a look. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm in Rainbow Beach, three hours away, and my car won't even open. It can't be towed, and you're saying to bring the car in. And they said, sorry, sir, we appreciate your difficulty, but unless you bring her in, we can't decide whether we can help. 
So in other words, to make my car better, I would need to already have my car better, I said. <laughs> to be better, I would already need to be better. You can hear advice like that about anxiety sometimes. If you just wouldn't worry so much, you wouldn't feel so anxious. If you just didn't overthink everything, things would be so much easier. And there's this formula lurking there. If you were just better at being stronger, you'd be stronger and better. Sometimes it's just annoying, a bit irritating, but at its worst, it can actually be when dressed up in spiritual clothing, falsely spiritual clothing, uh, you know, wrought by pastors. And I know Dave would never do this. Uh, one reason I love him. Um, it can actually be very damaging. I had a very close loved one at a church I was going to with her who was struggling with literally life-threatening symptoms of a severe mental illness in and out of hospital, probably partly genetic in origin and definitely partly because of the toxicity of the church. And some pastors and young interns, young, strong, muscular men with deep, professed Calvinist convictions, self-described Calvinist convictions, sat down and told my loved one that the reason they were suicidal was because of sin in their life and unbelief. The real issue, according to their textbooks on biblical counseling, was heart idols. And the way to deal with idols is to repent. Now that approach, and I um, apologize um, if it's an approach that um, some of you follow sincerely. I respect the sincerity of it, but in my view, it's something I disagree with. I don't think it's scriptural. It quotes Bible verses as proof texts, so there's plenty of Bible in there, little nuggets. But it uses fragments of God's word in ways that are foreign to God's word, as ways almost to reduce down the messy complexities of human life into little packages that can be labelled, judged, shamed, and perhaps repented of. And I wonder if you've heard any of these things, or even passed them on with good intentions. Now, that's enough of that. I want to break to you the fantastic news that that is not how God addresses us in anxiety. It might use God language, but that is not how he addresses us both those kinds of advice, the quick fix or let me take your tooth out, or the wouldn't it be great if you were stronger and better so you could be stronger and better, both of those are refusals to get in the ditch with the person who's in the ditch. I'm not getting in there with you. My goodness, I'm glad I'm not you. You should come out and be with me. Now, if you know anything about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that's not God's relation to us in this world. His word is not, in fact, advice. It's a radically different kind of word. Almost, we need a different radio set to hear it. It's on a different wavelength. Instead of heaping smothering sands of shame on somebody in, in distress or anxiety, God's actual work is more like cool, refreshing water that makes shoots of hope spring up in their own good time, not necessarily straight away but in their own good time, makes shoots of hope and life spring up even in the driest soil. And maybe that soil is you today. Maybe it's past you. 
Maybe it's future new, are you, and you don't know that that's coming yet. It was once my story. It could be that at this present moment, you're one of the millions of Australians with anxiety disorder symptoms that are really interfering with your life, with your ability to sleep, to feel safe, to eat, to do your work, to just feel comfortable in your own body. Almost certainly, it will be the experience of someone you know in your family, your friends, your colleagues, your fellow church members, your brothers and sisters. And maybe at some point you have had anxiety surface, but you learned just to bury it, to disown it, to sort of suppress it and, and numb from it and get busy for God. So one of the key things that God's Word does and we need to do, listen to today is it tears down as it builds up. And it's a precious ministry, the tearing down. We need to tear away, tear down a lot of kind of Christianese junk that has accumulated around mental health over the decades, not least in Bible-believing churches. Sometimes it's just as important to unhear what sounds Christian but isn't in order to clear the ground for what is really there. One such kind of junk that I grew up with, and it took me a long time to recognize this, actually went right to the heart of my understanding of Jesus and his character. And often this is common with, with bad advice on anxiety. It's to imagine Jesus, or Paul, or any of the apostles for that matter, as, or any of the Bible figures, as somehow above it all. As if Jesus would ever have anxiety. It's a sin. He's way too godly for that. And behind those denunciations, there lurks this false and but very deceptive view of Jesus as untrammeled, untroubled, impervious. So yes, he's our rock, but he's not impervious like a rock. We might think, as I once did and as some teach, that the more like Jesus we are, the more impervious we will become. Jesus is impervious, I need to be impervious. If Jesus was bulletproof, so should I be. Now that view of Jesus is simply not biblical. In technical terms, it's docetic, like a Jesus who looks like he was sort of human but wasn't really fully human. And that may be another whole sermon that Dave can do for you after I leave. Um, but it's not the true Jesus of the Bible. It might be the Jesus of certain religious sects going all the way back to the second century, but it's not the model of the Bible. And it's not the model of life in the spirit that we read about in Romans 8. In Romans 8, in fact, Paul, like the gospel writers, shows us quite the opposite, that the more like Jesus we become, it's not a case of becoming more impervious, more tough and unaffected by the troubles of the world, the more like Jesus we become, the better we get at groaning, at groaning aloud. If you go through the Gospels, something emphasized by the Gospel writers in the, their, their zoom-in moments when they go into you know, that, that sort of minute-by-minute minute drama of Jesus interacting with someone, is the loudness of his cries. One of the ones I love most is the way he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
if there's ever a moment to feel impervious, to feel like Superman is here, never fear, it would be then. But he sees Mary's tears and he weeps loudly. It's like a snort. It's from the guts. Nobody doubts it is from the guts. He is moved in his guts. There's a really interesting verse too in, in the book of Hebrews. Um, and we don't have time to go into all the context, but it also highlights Jesus' loudness. It says in Hebrews 5.7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. Sure, that sounds godly. And then there's like three words together with loud or huge, fervent cries and tears. And I used to think that it meant, well, despite those loud tears, he was accepted because he was reverent. But reading again in the original this morning, I thought, wow, that is striking. It's actually more like, and those tears, that loudness of cry, was a reverence. He was heard in his loud cries. It was a reverent cry to be loud. And I just, I think there's so much in our culture as kind of Protestant settlers <laughs> from Scottish or Dutch descent as Presbyterians, I, that's what I'm from, like a few generations of Scottish Calvinists, who, when I thought about reverence, thought about quietness. Like my grandfather would have a reverent time after lunch or something, and he would take on this kind of very soft voice, Father, we thank thee for thy gifts to us today. And it was very soft and, and, and kind of King James um, and not loud, right? And so this is a time among many, one among many, where we can think about the clash between our cultural expectations of what reverence looks like and what Jesus is actually like. So today's passage is not very, uh, and today's sermon is not about advice. It is, as I said in the interview uh, before, about owning your groaning. And I know that um, at SNBC they taught us to have memorable sermon titles, so there's some rhyming for you, owning your groaning. And there are two kinds of groaning in this passage, and I want to show you a bit about both, a bit how they relate to anxiety, and most important, how they sound together at the same time. Not cancelling each other out, that is a key point, not cancelling each other out. And in Romans 8, as we talked about in the interview a moment ago, we're at a summit where we can look at the new age having broken in, the new age of the kingdom of God, of the glorification and redemption of the whole planet. It's started to break in, but we're still, as it were, in the age of labor and childbearing pains, awaiting the baby to be born, awaiting the kingdom to fully come. It's that old adage of now and not yet. So let's look more closely at these two groans. There's firstly the groan or the cry of dad. You're my dad in verse 15 to 16. And the word is more cry than groan, but for the sake of today's sermon, we can think of them as loud exclamations nonetheless. And then there's groans of pain and hope and prayer amid the troubles of this world in verse 22 to 26. So the first one, the groan of intimacy, or the cry of intimacy, is that of coming a, a child drawing near to a father they know loves them, a father they know is welcoming them, a groan of deep connection, of trust, of not necessarily knowing all that's going on, but knowing whose chest you're leaning into. 
of safety and belovedness. So I was going to say, think of the noises a three-year-old will make, but they can make a lot of different noises. So I'm going to talk about my puppy, Pippi, who is the most gorgeous. She's a forever puppy. She's three years old, but everybody still thinks she's a puppy. She's tiny. She's five kilos. She's a teddy bear. She's a cavoodle. She has these long ears, big eyes, and a heart that's like 10 times her body weight, right? She just has so much love. And if she sees my wife's parents come to the driveway, she'll start groaning. <laughs> like, mm, mm, like from the stick. She'll run down, she'll be at the gate groaning, and they'll pick her up and greet her and she'll kiss them, and she'll still be groaning minutes later. And it's a groan of, oh, we're together. It's so good to be together. I love you, I love you. It's a groan of intimacy. You can see this in verse 15 to 16, the way the Spirit works this through us and in us. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, or it is not a spirit of slavery, so that you live in fear again. And note that the fear is not a fear of... uh, he's, He's opposing this intimacy to fear, but it's not a fear about troubles in the world. It's a fear about our standing with God. A fear of, oh, God's a grumpy taskmaster. I might do this wrong and he'll be angry with me. That sort of fear. A fear as if I were just an employee of a curmudgeonly boss. That's the contrast. It's not that. It's a, we have a spirit of adoption or, or sonship. And by that spirit, so in other words, the spirit is in us. It brings out this cry, this first groan. And the groan is Abba. And you probably already know that that's Aramaic for dad. It's not formal, you know, father, you know, sir of the house or head of the household. It's dad. It's, it's like kid language. Kid language. So the spirit elicits in us a groan that brings out kid language to draw near to our father with. And the spirit doesn't stand off. He enters into us and testifies with, like, gets alongside and speaks with our spirits that we are God's children. Not slaves or servants, not people who are worried about their next performance review, but children. So that's the first um, groan. Let's have a look at the second one. The second groan is the groan of enduring suffering in hope, of crying out with the pains, the birth pangs of creation. The pains of having been subjected to frustration or the world having been subjected to frustration and of hoping for something we don't yet have, a redeemed body. Let's have a look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So this kind of groaning is joining in with a chorus that's already going on in the world, a chorus of a world groaning. Paul says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit who'll be bringing this new age of redemption, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. So notice we already have adoption to sonship and we groan in affirmation of that and yet we're still waiting for it and we groan in hope of that. In the same way, just down in verse 26, skipping forward a bit, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So in this world of broken groaning, we don't even know how to manage our prayer life sometimes, right? It's hard to know how to get on top of it all. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But here is the Spirit again. The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. 
So there were actually three parties groaning at the same time. The creation itself is groaning as things are not what they're meant to be and will be. We ourselves, as God's children, are groaning with creation, longing for that redemption. And the Spirit is working groans in us. This is the same Spirit who above is causing us to cry out, Abba, Dad. So the key to notice, in terms of the passage, is that the Spirit is working in us both kinds of groans at the same time. Both kinds of groans. Not, he doesn't just prefer one over the other, like the happy one and not the sad one. Those groans are not in opposition. They unite at the point of patient hope. So what better reason to own our groaning than the fact that he already does? The Spirit already owns the groaning with us. In fact, he's helping to do it. We would just be walking in step with him if we were to groan. So if someone says to you, oh, that's just all you know, optional, emotional, hippie stuff, like the sort you do in Byron Bay or Mount Tambourine, it's not for serious Christians, they would be wrong, right? <laughs> this is what the Spirit is doing and always has been doing in the hearts of God's children. Let's have a little look at how each groan might relate to anxiety. So, uh, sorry, I've just got my page mixed up here. That's the problem with these loose leaves. The first kind of groan, the groan of child-parent intimacy, is about resting, right? Resting in the finished work of Christ. And there is a connection with anxiety because some of our deepest and most anxious questions behind our worries are things like, am I okay with God? Have I done enough? Will I be cast aside? Will it always be like this? Will I be left out? If I'm feeling this pain, is it because I've done something wrong? And the answers to those questions are all explicitly clear in the text of Romans 8, as we've read it. When we groan that first groan of parental intimacy, we're actually growing into a sense of assurance by the Spirit that we are okay with God, and more than okay, we're his dear little ones. To take a few examples, look at verse 1 and 2 of Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God has done what the law and what we were powerless to do. God has done it. So we already stand in a secure relationship of childhood to his fatherhood. So will we be okay? Well, more than okay, if we're his children, we are heirs of an exorbitant inheritance. We're coming into an inheritance that is beyond imagining from the very sovereign, not of a country, not of a continent, not of a petty tin pot empire, but of the universe. And will things be okay while we wait? Well, yes. In Romans 8.28, you'll know it well. God stitches all things together for our good, for his glory, and to make us more like Jesus while he's at it. What a master craftsman. 
Will God let us go under? Well, look down at the end of the chapter. Paul says, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? What else can we say? And Paul's almost singing at the end of the chapter. Can trial, temptation, trouble, sword, anything separate us? No, he says, we are super victors. Not just scraping over the finish line, super victors through him who loved us, more than conquerors. So these are the kinds of assurances that come alive in our spirits as we draw near to God and groan, Abba, I know you're for me. I know you love me. That's the first groan. But the question remains, if God has done all this, if he has folded me into his family, if his very breath is in me, if that breath brushes the deep strings of my heart into a music that cries, Abba, Father, if that's true, then why is it so incredibly painful? If it's true that we're more than conquerors, why do we feel scared, small, overwhelmed, abandoned, confused, at risk of abandonment, at risk of shame, at risk of scarcity. And this is where we might want to watch out for some more Christianese advice. A good Christian, and perhaps even an evangelical Reformed Presbyterian one, might tell us that the reasons we don't feel big and strong is because we haven't sufficiently apprehended gospel truths. Have you ever heard that on a podcast? The solution then is to more deeply, more fervently study the Bible. More deeply draw the truths into your bones and then you'll be stronger. And that sounds godly and don't get me wrong, the word is our food and it is our light and it is our treasure. So certainly wouldn't want to say don't eat or don't use the light. But if that turns into a voice that says, wow, naughty, if you were just better at reading your Bible, if you were just better at taking it in, you'd be stronger. It's that same advice. If you were just better at being stronger, you'd be stronger and better. Sorry. Well, nothing could be further from the way Jesus deals with the humble and the overwhelmed. The ones who are mourning those who are brokenhearted. You don't have to have a master's degree in New Testament <laughs> to know that that's how he deals with people in the four Gospels. Just spend time watching what it's like to be with him, watching what he's like with those who are overwhelmed, who are undone. He did not, and as far as I'm aware, does not say, you really should be doing more Bible study. You should be coming Wednesday nights that's not his voice. Not that Wednesday nights are a bad thing, by the way. <laughs> not to say that the Bible is bad, but he doesn't impose some kind of falsely spiritual causal mechanism on a person and says, if you put this input in, you'll get that output. Instead, he invites us in and he comes into our groaning. And that's the second kind of groaning here. The first groan, the groan of Abba, gives us the most secure base from which to get better and bolder at the second kind of groan. As we get more assured in our childlike intimacy 
our sense of belovedness in God, we don't become more impervious to trouble. We don't get further from the feelings of anxiety that plague humanity. And that's why it's so helpful to read uh, Nikki's book, which is on the bookstall. I'll just wave it around. It's this one here, Dave, Fight, Flight and Faith. Got the, the title there. Um, as she says, an anxiety disorder is not a faith disorder. So it's not that we get more impervious to pain, but we get more confident in voicing that pain to our Father who loves us. We actually learn to express our faith in groans of suffering, in hope. And this is where a little quirk in Romans 8 comes up. It's a wonderful quirk. We find guidance in an unexpected place. And another way I thought of arranging this sermon would be just to simply ask you the question, why on earth is Psalm 44 in the middle of the triumphant hymn in Romans 8? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Psalm 44 pop up down the bottom? The words I'm talking about, which are from Psalm 44, is, as it is written, for your sake we are being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Why would he pop Psalm 44 there? Well, I'm not a mind reader, and there could be many factors. But when you read Psalm 44, one answer that comes out, and has to be among the factors, is that Psalm 44 is, is one of many psalms of lament and, and suffering, right? Uh, I think two-thirds, on, on a rough count, two-thirds of the psalms are lament and complaint and suffering. They are the second kind of groaning, <laughs> with a little bit of the first kind sewn <laughs> in, in between. But 44 stands out because it's actually really bold in saying, look, God, we've searched around and, okay, sure, if we've done something wrong, you would be right in punishing us. That's the kind of covenant we have with you. That's, the, that's our history. But in Psalm 44, the psalmist is convinced that's not what is going on. It's convinced of God's covenant love. He's convinced of God's covenant love. And therefore, he's saying, it isn't because of us that we're suffering, it's because of you. You're doing this. It's for your sake we're suffering. Somehow, you've willed it. It's not our fault in this case. So in other words, it's a really loud and proud groan. A lament, not proud in a bad sense, but bold to say, God, what is going on? What are you doing right now? And I think what Paul is handing us as readers is not simply one small quote. That's often not the way quotations worked in the New Testament. It's more a representative token, almost like a key that opens up onto a whole cupboard or a whole Narnian world <laughs> behind the cupboard of a spirituality entailed and sewn into the prayer book of Israel, which is the prayer book of the church and hopefully your prayer book too. And I just want to segue to this book. I asked Dave to order this for the bookstore because uh, it's a wonderful um, sort of addressed at a church-wide audience, not an academic one, but written by academics about the forgotten words, the lost words of the Psalms of lament and imprecation, the ones where the psalmists are calling down curses on the enemies. Like, and looking at what we lose when we simply skip over those ones to our favorite high point psalms, like Psalm 23, Psalm 103, Psalm 150, or whatever. So there's a lot of others in the middle. And 
Paul, I think, is handing to us a key that opens up the richness of this repertoire of complaints, a repertoire of biblical groaning, a groaning that is bold in its trust in Yahweh's goodness. It's a groaning best voiced in the Psalms, Psalms that give, uh, give um, expression to ang- ang- anguish, to agony, to fear, anxiety, doubt, and hope, not by doubting themselves, but by asking God. There's one, I think it's Psalm 74, I could be wrong, that actually asks God effectively to take his hand out of his pocket. Where have you been, God? Come on, get busy on my behalf. And there's a childlike trust, actually, as, as uh, Kit Barker, one of the authors, says in this, it's actually the most faithful response. Because rather than suppressing, rather than taking out your anger on other people, you're giving it to the one who you actually entrust to really deal with it. The one who's really got it, who's able to really hold it. So groaning in that second sense is a groaning of faith. Most of the Psalms, when you read them, don't sandwich uh, their pain into prayer requests or bullet points. They don't put, you know, a lot of nice stuff on the outside and then a little bit of groan in the middle. They just go for it when they need to. Just to name a few, the waters are up to my neck, God. My soul thirsts for you. I'm surrounded by enemies. There's corruption and wickedness among the rulers. Help. People who do the wrong thing always seem to be doing better than I am. My bones are wasting away. I feel like a dried-out wineskin hanging in the smoke. That's one of my favorites, just this withered wine. I've felt like that at times. I'm trembling. We read this yesterday in the workshop, Psalm 55. I am shaking so much, I just want to go to the wilderness so I can have some quiet. I can't handle it. The horrors of death are overwhelming me. And that's just a tiny fraction But Paul is opening out, really, a songbook of groaning to you. He's giving you the Psalms of Lament as the words to go alongside the groaning of childhood intimacy. And this answers the question, too, if I'm suffering, Psalm 44 is an answer to the question of if I'm suffering, if I'm feeling scared, weak, shaky, or anxious, is it because I'm doing something wrong? Is God against me at this moment? Is he wagging his finger? The answer is no. It's for your sake we're suffering. In you we are suffering. As your children we are suffering. So you can call out to him in these two ways at the same time. And that's really the invitation today. It's not advice about anxiety. I know firsthand how anxiety hurts my loved ones and myself. This is an invitation to groan in two ways. To say, God... You're my dad. I need to draw near to you right now. I'm coming, dad. And at the same time, God, ouch. This really hurts. Why are you doing this? Where are you? Take your hand out of your pocket, please. If there's any other way, take it from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. As Nikki writes so eloquently in her memoir, it's okay not to feel okay. And often anxious people will have that extra layer, not only of the anxiety itself, but an anxiety about the anxiety. It means I'm doing it wrong. It might make me sick. People will look down on me. That's not the voice of God. God loves to comprehend 
to, as Psalm 56 said, put in his bottle our tears and our groaning. He's got limitless resources for the tiniest of tears. And what's for certain is that he doesn't wait for us to dig ourselves out of our hole before we come to him. He doesn't wait for us to tidy ourselves up, to fix it all up by ourselves, to wipe away our own tears before we come to him. We know he's the promise maker, the one who promises to wipe away our tears. So have you given thought to your groaning? Do you own your groaning? This is not a fix, it's not a spiritual technique, but it's an invitation to lean into groan, to, to groan into the intimacy of Abba, Dad, and as you grow in your experience of that intimacy, to allow him to grow you in your ability to complain well, to groan well, to groan loudly. That's the only way to do it well. Don't hold back. So bring your pain, bring your anguish, Bring your fear. It could be something that's been plaguing you for decades. It could be something that's come quite unexpectedly. It could be for you or it could be for those dear to you. It could be the state of the world. Bring that to your father. Bring the sting of social anxiety if you have it. Bring the pain of perfectionism. Bring the unwanted trembling. Bring that horrifying fear of scarcity and ill health. You don't need to deny them. You don't need to suppress them. You certainly don't need to take them out on other people, which I know is myself the most tempting thing to do. And you don't need to invalidate them as somehow inappropriate for Christianity or inappropriate for God, whether on your own part or that of your fellow brothers and sisters. But instead, can I encourage you to lean into, as a whole way of life, groaning to the God who loves us. Let me pray. Father, your ways are so much higher and better than anything we would come up with if we were designing religion, as we often do, misguidedly. And we thank you for how radically different, how radically downward coming to us, not expecting us to climb up any ladders, how downward your love is to us. We thank you that there is no qualification, no deed, no bad experience that disqualifies us from coming to your lap as Abba, to trusting you, to, taking care, to take care of all things. And we thank you that you care enough to know our groanings, to want even to join in by your spirit in working them through us back to you in prayer. So let that be so in our hearts, Father. Let each of us know and experience a strange warming of the heart from your Holy Spirit testifying to us that, yes, we really are children of this wonderful God. And yes, he really does care. We pray this for your glory. We thank you that you work in us as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Amen.